Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest needs no introduction. Joining us from Bucharest in Romania, Costin Raiu, uh, who was up until recently the head of the great team doing anti-malware research and big fish <laughs> uh, paleontology. How are you, Costin? Welcome to the show. Uh, well, thanks, Ryan. Good to see you again. Uh, I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I used to be really, really worried about you working 10, 12 hours a day, uh, sometimes 14 hours a day sitting in front of the computer. I know you got into Taekwondo recently. Help me understand where your head is at now, uh, having left the great team. Talk a little bit about why. Why leave now? Is there any sort of political connotations to this with war and all that talk, or is there something else? Well... <sighs> there's like a very a couple of very good questions there uh, uh, in your question i can actually uh, see maybe four or five different ones so maybe let's just start with one which i think is quite important for everybody which is uh, uh, mental health or physical health as probably know as you are in your 40s maybe you go into your 50s uh, you're no longer <laughs> you're no longer young and you you can't just lose nights anymore i guess uh, It's a concept that a lot of people are familiar with, and it's. Uh, I think it's important uh, that there's more and more discussions about this: how to cope with stress, for instance, and uh, how do you balance life? How do you balance life, work, uh, and your personal health at the same time? In my case, um, I, I've always um, uh, been a kind of a person who I, I won't basically sit up until I finish what I am doing. So I, maybe I just start uh, diving into some new malware, some new attack. Um, and you know, 14 hours later, I'm still doing that. I haven't uh, um, eaten anything. I haven't <laughs> drank any kind of water. And uh, a, a point probably comes in your life when you can't do that anymore. So you need to maybe take a step back, think a bit, and uh, see where, where where all this is going. And in my case, uh, it was kind of funny that at uh, the kind of peak of the pandemic, uh, my daughter started training in Taekwondo. Um, After we finished watching everything on Netflix, on uh, HBO, uh, we just went back to some of the uh, old school uh, Kung Fu movies or Jet Li movies uh, like Hero. And she asked us one day, like, hey, can I go and learn this kind of martial arts? So we said, okay. So she started and uh, me and my wife, we were just watching um, a few couple of lessons and then we pretty much we talk between ourselves and so like why are we just sitting why don't we uh, practice as well and that's how i um, got into taekwondo almost four years ago now i think you're serious about it um i am i am so i think i can you know honestly say that one of my goals is to get my black belt in taekwondo before i turn 50 uh hopefully i can do that um sooner i'm uh, going to be 47 this year and If all goes well, maybe I'll be able to get the the to pass the exam for the black belt uh, later this year, maybe in the summer or or the winter. Um, but, but you can say I'm serious. Yeah, I, I went to a couple of competitions. I got uh, gold in uh, individual forms. I got gold with my wife in pairs uh, last year. So you can say that we're we're pretty serious. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I want to go back to this 14-hour days and, and finding yourself set, sitting in front of the laptop. Do you find this work, APT research and malware research, to be high stress just generally? Or did you find it high stress for you because of your personality or the position you were in? Because let's not beat around the bush. Great was sitting at a place in computer security history that really 
changed the way things were done and how things were done publicly. The stress you talk about that, you know, led you to like reevaluate mm-hmm. things. Did that come from being great specific or your own? I'll tell you two stories. Uh, one of them, many years ago, a much wiser um, friend of mine, an older wiser friend of mine came and he said that um, as far as he can see in this business, we are burning people um, like candles. We're burning them very young, almost, you know, uh, drying them of all their energy uh, so fast, so fast. And I couldn't understand what he meant. I, I only understood what he meant like uh, many years later. Uh, and then I realized that, yeah, you need to kind of take things uh, <laughs> easier. You need to take them slower. And you need to maybe think a bit more about how you invest your energy and what what you invest your energy into. And by the way, that's another big uh, discussion there. Like nowadays with artificial intelligence and how how that is changing threat intelligence uh, a lot. Is it still worth investing like hours and hours writing reports that maybe you know AIs and uh, large language models can write more effectively for you? But nevertheless, yeah, I'll get to yeah. that. I wanna I wanna get to the way like some of this AI innovation mm. is changing the game and changing the way research is done. But I still want sure. I want to go back to you know high yeah. stress. Do, does it have to be high stress? Uh, that, that's a good question. So, like I said, um, well, on on one hand, like my friend was saying, we are we are burning people. So, because of uh, this burning of people, um, that's kind of you know you have very high casualties, if I can call it like that. People are shifting jobs; they're moving from one job to another quite often. And uh, like one of the things that I was uh, proud for many years is that we had a very high retention rate. People love their jobs. Um, what I think that uh, put a lot of stress was the fact uh, that uh, things become a bit different when you have customers on one hand and then when you have uh, quotas that you need to reach. So when you start pushing, let's say, to to um, to publish like, let's say, 50 reports or then you publish 100 reports and then you need to publish, I don't know, 200 or 500 or 1,000 reports just to be, let's say, um, and at the same level as your competitors, then, uh, yeah, you put like a lot of stress on everybody. And I think that that's one of the issues in the industry at the moment that uh, uh, private intelligence probably uh, uh, can be uh, categorized in maybe um, two, let's say, uh, big uh, <laughs> uh, sets. One would be um, spammy threat intelligence and those are like companies that are publishing i know 1000 reports per year and then like a very um, let's say uh, high quality low volume reporting and that would be companies which push maybe i don't know 15 or 20 reports per year now customers of course they want the volume uh, but at the same time i've seen a lot of customers complain there's like just too much there's like just too much spam so I remember we spoke to a customer who said he has uh, five analysts going through reports uh, from one specific vendors every day. So he had to allocate five people from his own team just to read the reports coming from one vendor. And uh, it shouldn't be like that for sure. Like you shouldn't, uh, if you're buying private trade intelligence, you shouldn't put five or 10 or 15 people to just read reports and make sense out of them. Like which ones are relevant to me? Um, which one give me an edge? Which which ones, let's say, I can actually 
uh, use effectively in my infrastructure, which ones are actionable and so on. You spent 13 years at, as head of GREAT. Uh, and I remember when GREAT was created. I mean, I, I think I joined the team uh, a year later. But when, when GREAT was created, I remember you and I went to Virus Bulletin somewhere in Canada. Was it Montreal? Uh, Vancouver? Or in Geneva. Oh, Geneva as well. Or in Geneva, and we were talking about threats on Twitter and social media threats, and this whole notion of APT research wasn't really a thing Mm. yet. How how and when did you know that APT research Mm. was going to be this specialist thing that could become Mm. a business? Like, was there a tipping point uh, during the creation of GREAT? Was GREAT created specifically for this? Walk me back to why was GREAT Mm. created and what was the idea? Um, I think there was for sure a tipping point, and I can tell you exactly when that tipping point uh, came for me. It was uh, when Google announced uh, the Aurora attack, if you remember that. That was the 2009, yeah, in December, I think it was. And that was, like for me, that was the moment when I realized that this will be big. Uh, Perhaps other people, you know, they realized this earlier, but that was the moment when, uh, uh, for me, pretty much everything, it kind of fell into place. Um, let's say there were there were things happening before the Aurora attack for sure. I remember a couple of reports like Shady Rat, maybe perhaps. Uh, but that was the moment when I realized that you know, on one hand, you have cyber criminals somewhere here, and there's like a lot more, much more sophisticated happening uh, with the potential to impact a lot more people and businesses. Uh, in a more more significant way. And I, I think that, yeah, that was one of the founding ideas of GREAT, to have a team of uh, top-notch researchers distributed around the world, very important, like to have local knowledge, uh, who can essentially um, analyze, tackle pretty much the most sophisticated threats that we come by. And uh, we built on, on top of that concept. We built on top of that to hire more people and try to find and discover bigger and bigger things um, and let, let me by the let me tell you just one more story uh, from my uh, domain which is very dear to me from uh, from from the world of chess so there used to uh, to be a very famous chess player called uh, Paul Morphy I may have mentioned it before in my in my presentations but kind of a genius a guy who was um, playing chess at such a level that to him maybe it was not that important to win anymore, but what was important to him it was to to play brilliantly, so that the people when they saw the games they you know they would cry, they would laugh, <laughs> they would roll over in the dust. Uh, so his goal wasn't necessarily winning, but creating kind of art and uh, essentially um, that he he reached a point where. Whenever he was visiting a new city, the people knew. They knew that he was coming. So there would be like a huge crowd of people waiting for him uh, at the gates and demanding that he plays a brilliancy, demanding that he plays something amazing, new, brilliant that nobody has seen before. And I think that this was one of the one of the things um, that uh, created a lot of pressure by the way, and still creates a lot of pressure in our industry. This kind of demand that whenever you're publishing a lot of brilliant things, people kind of become accustomed to you releasing brilliant things. So they want more brilliant things. And at some point, you know, there's just that many brilliant things that you can find. So finding new brilliant stuff gets harder and harder and harder. So this kind of spiral 
yeah, this kind of spiral creates a pressure. And not just me, but essentially Paul Morphy at some point, he just stopped playing whatsoever. And I think he died quite young from a, from a brain stroke. Uh, but this kind of pressure was the reason why he essentially stopped playing chess. And I, I guess in our industry, a lot of people feel that pressure uh, to create brilliant things. Was it an intellectual pressure that you put on yourself or was it a commercial pressure that was put on you due to business demands? And I ask this question is because Grit became a revenue generator. Grit was a mini business unto itself. Can you talk a little bit about the emergence of a business mm. model out of what became just doing malware research and writing reports? I think, um, you know, um, 2010, Aurora, then a couple of other big things happened, right? Uh, we have Stuxnet, um, then after Stuxnet, you know, we have Tuku and all these big things. And essentially, um, pretty much at the, I think around the same time, uh, um, CrowdStrike, a big company, they start uh, providing a private reporting service, if I remember correctly, maybe one of the first commercial reporting services. I kind of remember that back then, everyone was uh, sharing essentially reports freely. Like if I discover something interesting, I would just share the report with my peers. On mailing lists, right? Yeah. Like you guys had your yeah, own yeah, private, private mailing uh, lists. Uh, communication mm-hmm. channels, yeah. Uh, just like, uh, you know, nowadays people share that on Slack or Discord, I guess, maybe, I don't know, Keybase. Back then, you know, people had mailing lists and would share private reports in advance or with each other through mailing lists. And I think that... Um, CrowdStrike was one of the companies which focused on a commercial model. Instead of maybe sharing this uh, information, they um, created, they built a commercial service uh, and wrote, let's say, brilliant reports and made them available for loads of money. And it came to me that the same model, you know, it can be, uh, for sure, it can be replicated and it will be replicated. And if you don't do that as well, you will essentially just fall behind. And uh, we started, uh, you know, putting the foundation of the um, of the first private reporting uh, uh, services around 2011, 2012. It may very well be that we uh, published the first private report around 2014, uh, if I remember correctly. But uh, uh, nevertheless, we we realized at that point that uh, if you publish a report then you pretty much you burn all your information, right? Uh, and then the actors, they change everything, they adapt and you lose your eyes on them. And that can be detrimental for your customers on one hand, uh, and it can produce kind of an escalation uh, in this race between security vendors and threat actors. So yeah, the idea to create a private reporting service came uh, uh, naturally. It was just what the industry was moving into. Uh, and I think other companies, they just follow suit. Uh, so that at the moment, yeah, we have quite a few big vendors doing this. Yeah, now every threat research lab has mm. theirs, right? What did you think made Great mm. successful? Uh, and I know you talked about the model of making sure you had local folks uh, in individual geographies, but that, that couldn't have been what made it uh, special. Did you have special access to certain data that others didn't have? Did you, uh, did you, do you feel like your team had a different mindset and approach mm-hmm. 
to doing these things? What made Great stand out among all these other companies that had as much resources as you had? I think uh, that that's a very, very good question. Uh, I think I recently had a discussion with a good friend of mine, Thomas Reed, and we were talking a bit if, if there's maybe a kind of a school of threat intelligence, if you want, or like different schools of threat intelligence around the world. And if, uh, let's say, maybe, I don't know, um, Western companies uh, have once or follow one school of thought of threat intelligence and Eastern schools follow a different thought. Um, I think probably one of the kind of, let's say, um, advantages in our case was that we try to combine as many types of uh, intelligence as possible into one thing. So rely not just on one single uh, uh, source of information, let's say maybe telemetry, right? But we try to combine everything that was available to us, like data coming from um, honeypots, like, uh, uh, you know, simple SSH honeypots that people try to break into, uh, com- combine data from underground forums, combine data from crawlers, uh, combine data from uh, passive DNS databases, and just, you know, hunt with Yara. And I think Yara was also a very important uh, factor here that we adopted it early on. And by just... But everybody else must have been doing the same thing still, right? Uh, maybe, yes or no. I, I think that... Um, one of like, and this is by the way, it's one of the biggest uh, problems in the industry is finding the needle in the haystack, right? And this problem gets more and more complicated the bigger the haystack is, right? And one of think one of the issues that a lot of people have is that they have maybe too much data. And uh, when you have too much data, it's like the typical, the famous NSA problem, right? They have too much data, and when you have too much data, you are no longer effective at finding the needle. Uh, So I think what um, uh, maybe, let's say, we did a bit better was uh, kind of uh, going through the the haystack with a a comb, then with a finer comb, and eventually then hunting for the needle in what's left. So going through several cycles of polishing and uh, essentially filtering uh, the selectors that you use to look for interesting things. And... Of course, the other the other thing which probably uh, needs to be mentioned is I think also very important is that the other threat intelligence companies they were not antivirus vendors, they were essentially new EDR like companies or new IR incident response companies. So that meant they didn't have access to the largest malware collection in the world. They didn't have access to telemetry from all corners of the world. And last but that was your big advantage, um, right? The big advantage is that you had this virus database that dated back, what, decades? Yes. You had access to data that others didn't have access to in certain parts and, of the world. I mean, you mentioned Stuxnet and Dooku, and you mentioned some other things there. You had an advantage. Yeah, there. but you'd also, I think you'd be surprised to hear that uh, another important thing, in my opinion, was also access to a very large uh, database of clean samples. And people don't realize how important it is to have access not. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, to have access not just to malware, but also to clean samples. Uh, clean sample is like, you know, uh, clean files that come from um, uh, Windows installations, from Office, from, let's say, pretty much all clean software out there. 
So when you have access to uh, what is, in my opinion, the largest database of clean software in the world, this is what we did have access to uh, in Braid, the largest database of clean software, then you can do a lot of uh, uh, weeding through the haystack. So you can uh, pretty much remove a lot of uh, false positives, clean files, uh, whenever, let's say, you write signatures, you can uh, fine-tune signatures, you can extract the uh, specific properties that are unique to certain malware samples, and you can do all sorts of magic uh, uh, with that to find the, the needle in the haystack. So I think, yeah, all, all these, they helped together. Uh, when you put them together, they all helped for sure. But uh, I, I would also say that uh, things really work when... Uh, and I think this is also uh, kind of important to mention. When you have a team of uh, top-notch people, uh, what is important is that the team works, uh, let's say, uh, like a clockwork. And the biggest mistake that I see personally when, uh, when managing teams is uh, uh, maybe doing too much or micromanagement, if you want. Micromanagement is probably the biggest killer of productivity. Uh, so I've seen a lot of uh, brilliant people, you know, being micromanaged and that essentially uh, leading, sadly, to, to all sorts of source stories, but definitely not to, to brilliant games, uh, yeah, like Paul Morphy. I want to loop back on, uh, on, on the issue of generating re uh, uh, revenue from private reports and the value of IOCs and shelf life of these IOCs. Can you talk a little bit about what the effect, the long-term wide-scale effect of that business model on helping businesses to protect themselves. Um, unless you're buying private reports from a specific place, then I don't have these IOCs, then I can't go hunting in my place. Does it mean I need to buy private reports from every vendor? Because I, you know, they all have different levels of visibility and different levels of skills to find things. Help me understand as a defender, how do I manage this ecosystem of private threat intel reports IOCs that necessarily don't have a long shelf life. How do you think about these things? So it's a very, very complex question there. Uh, and uh, let, let me start first by uh, by talking a bit about the shelf life of IOCs. So one of the things which I noticed is that um, for sure during the last 10 years or so, the shelf life of IOCs has been getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So maybe, you know, back in the days they were, APT groups using an, uh, a domain or an IP for years. Nowadays, these things are uh, changing a lot. So we see maybe attacks which uh, rely on a domain for just a day or maybe a couple of hours. Uh, so uh, on one hand, IOX, maybe they are not necessarily less relevant, but the time or the time frame during which they are relevant is getting smaller and smaller. When you say smaller and smaller, like like do we have an average? Uh, well, there's, there's, by the way, there's a mistake that I see a lot uh, is when uh, you provide IOCs to people and then the people, they just put those um, IOCs into their systems and they start checking from that moment on. And in uh, a lot of cases, that doesn't matter anymore because the, uh, those IOCs, they only make sense if you have the capability to look back, maybe look back one year, two years, three years, if you have that capability. So I think that, yeah, one of the biggest mistakes is uh, not to look back for IOX, but to check, let's say, just from now on. Uh, so having logs is a very important uh, thing here 
very costly, very costly. Thing, though, right? Like having logs and being able to look back two, three True. years and being able to do that retrospective mm. becomes a very, very costly mm. thing. I think the folks at Stairwell is trying to solve this problem and and and, and trying to manage this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And the other thing which also uh, is quite difficult to to understand is that not uh, not all IOX are the same and. Uh, that matters more than people can actually imagine. So just to give you an example, um, I could give you, let's say, an IP address, or I can give you uh, a Yara rule. And that IP address, maybe it will live for a very short period of time. But with the Yara rule, maybe, you know, uh, that Yara rule will still uh, be effective for six months or one year. So uh, if you want, you can even classify the IOPS uh, and what is useful and what is not and what, uh, actually can be effective for, for a longer period of time. But even, let's say, in case of Yara rules, not all Yara rules are the same. Um, I've seen cases, let's say, when people just brag about the fact that they have uh, 12,000 Yara rules uh, that they're using to scan their networks. And the reality is that, uh, again, 12,000 of uh, yeah. bad Yara rules, they will never find anything if they're not good enough. So... This, I think, the quest for volume uh, is one of the bad things in the industry. Uh, and uh, the other is uh, the fact that for sure the private sharing of IOX means for sure less cooperation. And because of that, overall, it is more difficult for, uh, for companies to get an effective set of things that they need to look for. You need to get a subscription from X, Y, Z company. And, yeah. Uh, that's, That's the reality. Yeah, it's a norm nowadays. I've seen uh, customers who buy maybe three, four, five different uh, subscriptions at the same time just to make sure they're covered. And they're still missing. They're still missing the stuff that the six Absolutely. guys, right? Like they're still they're still Absolutely. missing the stuff that, that and that's that was. But my... I think you know uh, AI is probably changing that. It is a moment of uh, big changes. Uh, it is uh, like again one of the one of the things is uh, when I when I decided to leave my job. Uh, I was thinking that if there's a good moment to live and just to think, think a bit like where the world is going and what are the new technologies that will shape the future, this is a moment. I think that there's a couple of um, big things which are happening that will shape the future. AI, for sure, uh, will put a lot of businesses uh, out. And uh, at the same time, I think they'll create new opportunities and uh, they will also... I think make things easier when it comes to having the right IOX. Is it easy to spot bad IOX? Like hmm. you mentioned, you mentioned quality of IOCs, <laughs> right? Like what makes a good IOCs? And if I'm on hmm. the defensive side, what what makes me look at it and say, hmm, these hmm. guys are, you know, this is more better quality I, than this. I, I'll be honest. I'll say that I I spot bad uh, bad IOCs every day on on Twitter or X. Uh, a lot of companies, you know, they just publish. Uh, research it's true there's a lot of new players in the field a lot of new startups trying you know uh trying uh, their luck at security and i've seen a lot of cases when companies they publish uh, i'll give you an example they publish a bunch of ip addresses and it just happens that some of those ip addresses they are parking ip addresses so maybe let's say amazon infrastructure or uh, from a registrar like Namecheap or GoDaddy. And if you put that into your SIM, uh, then you'll have like 100,000 alerts for a big enterprise. So 
it's probably not easy, but like how can you spot uh, uh, faulty IOX is you need to do some filtering. So I would never put uh, IOX that I get off the internet into production. I would put them like through a couple of tests first and then see how that goes and only then publish them to my uh, production systems. And this QA, uh, I think it's really important. Maybe me coming from an uh, antivirus background, for us, that was extremely, extremely important. So one of the most important things for us was uh, zero false positives. Like we we couldn't afford false positives. When people have false positives, things go bad. Remember a couple of years ago that uh, Defender, uh, it detected uh, things like uh, a bunch of critical Windows DLL files and a lot of people's computers crashed. You can't afford that when you when you have an antivirus product. So when you come with that kind of mentality, you are a lot more careful about uh, what kind of IOX you share and uh, you know the false positives and so on. What would you say is the research project at Grid that you're most proud mm. of? The one that you, you would possibly, the one that you're most proud of maybe personally and the one that you think was most mm. impactful? It's, it's difficult because there were so many that were, I would say, pretty big uh, in my opinion. No, I'll, I'll mention one which, uh, which I think was very, very important because of the timing, right? Uh, and that would be Red October. So you have to, uh, to, uh, to think a bit like uh, uh, early 2013, right? Early 2013, a couple of big things uh, have been happening, such as Tuxnet, Duku. But at the same time, uh, the world maybe hasn't seen uh, like big, sophisticated cyber espionage like really big when i say big i mean really big so two two things happened uh, have happened uh, in 2013 which is that we published our red october report can you can you for the audience can you just spend a second on what sure sure uh, let me just mention the other one just for the context which is uh, mendiant uh, mendiant's apt1 report so they they came like very very close uh, to each other uh, our Red October report and Mendiant APT1. Now, what Red October was, I think, was the the first big thorough report ever published about a Russian-speaking APT group, and uh, Mendiant's APT1 was probably the first big, really big report, deep report about a Chinese-speaking uh, APT group. And I think that both of them coming uh, uh, public in 2013 was kind of a defining moment uh, in threat intelligence. In our case, the reason why I say I'm proud is um, because it's really difficult to, let's say, um, bring new groundbreaking stuff to the public, right? And with, with Red October, um, what we tried to do was to provide a kind of a comprehensive picture. Uh, and uh, the rabbit hole was pretty deep, like back then. So we did a lot of uh, things back then, like sinkholing, working with law enforcement to get a couple of disk images, trying to find the motherships, uh, bypassing also for privacy and OPSEC protections. Overall, I think that was really interesting because uh, of the targeting that Red October had, you know, like targeting of uh, NATO encryption software, for instance. You have to uh, think that this was 2012. There was uh, targeting of routers. Uh, the attackers were collecting uh, credentials that allowed them to break into routers and uh, hijack and intercept uh, secure communications. Uh, and at the same time, I think it was interesting... Uh, that well obviously as i again 
Russian-speaking APT group. To put the, let's say, the problem from another angle, there are not many American companies exposing U.S. cyber espionage operations, right? Uh, and there's always like a question. We just, you know, it's uh, hovering <laughs> above you. It's just sitting there. Oh, we know because you're a company from whatever country. You you will never expose uh, or research an operation from your country, which is true. To be honest, it's quite true that a lot of uh, companies they prefer. It's becoming more and more yeah, obvious. Not to today. not to do that. They just focus on uh, threats to their customers. So let's say. If their customers are are being targeted by, uh, let's say, only only Chinese, Iranian, uh, Russian, and uh, North Korean APT groups, that is what you're gonna write about. Uh, but for companies with, I think, with a global presence, this is like a more and more uh, complicated question nowadays. And it was a criticism that you faced a lot of, which was that which was that we great was very well known for exposing, uh, not necessarily exposing, but researching if you and documenting mostly yeah mostly Western mm. uh, threats, and were mostly turning a blind eye to the Russian things. Uh, was there? Did you at any time face any pressure internally to not publish? No, <laughs> no, uh, and actually. Um, what I like to think is that we were publishing everything and we were publishing a very kind of a global uh, picture of things. So on one hand, I think that it was until maybe 2016 or 17, I think we published more uh, about more Russian uh, speaking APT groups than pretty much any other company. Um, and let me name just a few things like uh, Mini Duke or the Dukes. Uh, now known as APT29, but we published, I think, the, the first report in uh, 2014 about Mini Duke ahead of any other company. Red October, obviously, we published a couple of times about things like Sophos, APT28, uh, Black Energy, what is uh, now maybe known as uh, Sandworm, uh, and what's uh, been also called as uh, Hades, the APT group behind the... Uh, Olympic uh, games attack and so on. And I think that we did try to have a more balanced view of things. And the way that was seen perhaps was pretty much the other way around, because when you compare it to the norm or what other companies are publishing about, you will for sure kind of uh, stand out. But I, I would say that nowadays things have changed a lot. And there's for sure there's a lot of discussion. And to me, the biggest issue is that uh, research is becoming politicized. The fact that balkanization uh, is yeah, real. the fact that companies are becoming I don't know, selective about what they research or what they publish about, uh, and the fact that not like sometimes you know maybe companies if you want they would be more balanced or they would just publish whatever. Uh, they discover, but I think that also there is a higher interest from governments into uh, essentially controlling what is getting published and how things are getting published. And this is uh, probably going to become more visible uh, as we go forward. And at the same time, uh, I fear, I fear about the future of the world in the sense that at some point, redactors will just copy each other and turning a blind eye to something, it only means that it 
will be stolen and reused and uh, that can be of course a kind of a, a nightmare scenario you don't think that threat research has any room in it for friendlies um it, it depends what you mean by friendlies right um perhaps wh- when you're like a smaller company it's easier to to say what is friendlies correct but i think uh Maybe the biggest ethical dilemma nowadays is what you do. What do you do with uh, counterterrorism operations, right? Uh, do you expose them? Uh, do you detect them? Do you make a lot of noise about them? W- what about, let's say, the case when uh, exposing a uh, counterterrorism operation actually uh, leads to people getting killed? Uh, and well, I'll just give you an example. This is something that I, I've been thinking a lot. Um, I remember uh, we researched uh, back in 2012, we researched uh, Gauss, which is quite an exquisite cyber espionage operation targeting mostly. This was the uh, banking operation yeah. things that was part of, in part of the Middle East, Correct. right? They were tracking movement of money through. Correct, through mostly Lebanon, East, I think right? it was, right? And mm-hmm. uh, um, I think that's particular. And it was clear what the operation was to you? Like, do you know what that operation is I, I would to say it's more clear now. It was not clear back then because uh, we were all uh, uh, malware, malware reverse engineers. That's the word. We weren't like threat intelligence experts. Right. We weren't not even like intelligence experts, right? We didn't have the same uh, background as maybe analysts in uh, other companies. So maybe nowadays it's more clear that for sure, Gauss must have been a counterterrorism operation, uh, and it's quite interesting that maybe two or three weeks after we uh, we detected everything, we published about there was a, a terrorist attack in uh, Bulgaria in which a, a terrorist group, you know, they blew up a bus. And I was thinking to myself, what if our exposure actually uh, caused that incident? Because we essentially we created a kind of a blind spot. And during that uh, particular uh, blind spot uh, time frame, uh, the terrorists effectively killed people. Um, the opinions in the industry, they're like very, very, uh, very varied. Some people say it's not our job to think uh, if, uh, you know, uh, or the attackers need to be uh, better. They need to do better. Or um, if you want, yeah, these things shouldn't be researched or exposed at all. Or there's, I, I heard like people talking about the fact that uh, you shouldn't research anything uh, where the victims are in the Middle East. I, I heard people saying that just stay, stay out of the Middle East, just uh, research things where the victims are only in, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, NATO countries or so. What is your own philosophy? Are you like strict to the purity of the research? Everything needs to be published. Defenders need to defend themselves. Are you? Is there a gray area there where you can understand counterterrorism operations, or or even or even cases where it might be uh, a crime against children, human trafficking, oh, yeah, like, that uh, kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that by the way, that can be another uh, interesting topic here because there's a lot of discussions about uh, child pornography and giving mm-hmm. uh, governments access to your phone or to your encryption. And should researchers whitelist? And should researchers kind of take a whitelist approach mm-hmm. to those things, knowing what they are? And like, how do you, in your own head, manage those uh, things? Well, I, like, do you have a philosophy. Look, let's let's put it the other way around. Like looking at the like say successful operations to catch uh, uh, sex offenders or child pornography. 
or drug dealers, for instance. You realize that breaking uh, everybody's encryption had nothing to do with it. Like all successful cases, uh, they were not about breaking my encryption or your encryption or our listeners' encryption. It, they were like very highly targeted against the tools that the bad guys were using. So I think that uh, in general, speaking strictly in general, um, there are for sure methods, sophisticated methods by which you can catch the bad guys. Uh, when you're using the same tools that you're using to catch the bad guys for other purposes, let's put it like, for instance, uh, uh, spying on your political uh, opponents, uh, as has been the case, let's say, with Pegasus and all these uh, mercenaries, right? Uh, then you suddenly uh, jump into a whole whole different situation. So I think that, again, just to, to answer your question, for catching the really bad guys, there are for sure ways to do this properly that doesn't involve infecting everybody, which includes you and me. And at the same time, I just want to say that there's for sure a lot of abuse happening in which very powerful cyber espionage tools are used uh, for other purposes that they have been intended. And here, I think companies, uh, different companies out there, but also independent uh, groups like uh, Citizen Lab, they're doing a fantastic work trying to raise awareness, trying to make everyone more secure and trying to preserve our democracy. With 2024 being such a big year uh, in terms of democracy. You didn't answer my question though. Like, is there is there is there a gray area there? Or do, in your own mind, your own philosophy, your own personal thoughts, is there a gray area there where you can understand like, okay, this is something that does not need to be published mm. because I know what it is. And have you made that decision in, at one point in time? I think we published pretty much everything we found. Uh, what I think is interesting uh, to talk about here, and by the way, I, I do think that I answered your question, but I... I answered it in a more. I, didn't like I, I answer. answered it in a more philosophical <laughs> way, <right>? uh, <laughs> but like um, w- what I think is important to say here, right? What I think is important here is uh, there's different levels of interfering with what could be legitimate operations. So at the first level, there okay. would be uh, detection. So if you just put detections in your uh, EDR or antivirus product for something, that's one thing. If you research like uh, an operation, map their infrastructure, try to sinkhole uh, their command and control servers, get disk images, I think that's another level, right? It's still uh, like a more aggressive. And then you have uh, uh, writing a report, but doing it privately and publishing to your private subscribers. Then you have the cannonball, what we used to call the cannonball, which is you do all that, and on top of it, you make the report public, you pre-brief Kim Zetter. (laughs) Kim Zetter. Yeah, (laughs) and Gooden, yeah, Andy Greenberg, and then everybody on, like, uh, at the very specific moment, everybody publishes about it, and that is the cannonball. And now, uh, let's say... Where where is the uh, like where is the you know where's the the perfect where is like the exact the ideal, uh, state. ideal state where you should position yourself? Uh, I still don't know the answer. 
uh, I look around and I see companies uh, at both enders, uh, both ends of this uh, spectrum. I see there was a lot of discussion, for instance, when Google uh, published about a uh, Western city operation, while at the same time uh, taking a very interesting decision, which was not to publish any IOX. So that, for me, was quite interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, I've seen uh, companies publishing about uh, counterterrorism operations uh, with uh, dumping all sorts of IOX and, uh, again, for sure, compromising those legitimate counterterrorism operations. Did people die because of that? I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, and I, I believe that if you spend your life thinking about all these uh, points, you'll probably go mad. Uh, but what I think we should be aware, and everyone should be aware, at, at least that there are like certain levels where you choose to stop or where you choose to uh, position yourself. I think that's pretty much everybody's choice. It it and it isn't always obvious what it is, right? Because you mentioned earlier when you talked about the ghosting, is that not having that contextual knowledge. It was early in this APT research game. Today, maybe you'd have a different view of it. Is it fair to expect every security research team to have that sort of contextual background to understand what it is and to make these decisions on the fly? Uh, or is it always obvious that this is, say, a counterterrorism operation? Uh, it, it's, it's tough to answer that. But uh, what I can tell you is that um, uh, I spoke with people uh, who were saying, like, yeah, it was obvious that was a counterterrorism operations and then i spoke to other people who are saying i'm not entirely sure that was a counterterrorism operation can you be sure i guess you can be sure if uh, people like i don't know chris bing they uh, speak to different officials and then they publish an article in which they say well according to officials this was whatever it was right Right, right, right. But it isn't always obvious to you on the back end doing the research. It depends a lot, I think, on how experienced you are with these kind of things. I would say that nowadays, uh, uh, if you show me something, I can immediately tell you if it's that or not. The most confusing case is uh, when the same tool set, like the same malware is used to uh, spy both, let's say, on terrorists and uh, foreign officials. So like there's this famous case uh, that was in the news with uh, Merkel, right? Merkel's assistant in Germany uh, was targeted with some very sophisticated uh, toolkit. And the same toolkit at the same time was used to uh, spy on terrorists, essentially, or on terrorist nations. And that... creates a very complicated dilemma. I don't think it's maybe that popular nowadays. Uh, uh, just as the industry evolved, uh, APTs have evolved as well, and they became more refined, like separating tool sets, using different categories of tools for different purposes, using Cobalt Strike more or Brutratel or open source tools instead of, let's say, burning their own uh, private tools and chains. So... It's not just that the industry is changing, but threat actors are also learning, improving, and uh, changing every day. Another big change I've noticed, another big noticeable trend, and you mentioned it in, mm-hmm. in the earlier conversations, I kept mm-hmm. hearing you say Russian-speaking, Chinese-speaking. That was kind of like a, a hedge. on, uh, and, and I remember when we used to do this. Today, that has completely changed. Microsoft's uh, attribution is a lot more blunt. A lot of private sector companies, Sentinel-1, Palo Alto, Cisco Talos, like all these guys are going bluntly and saying, this is China and this is the subgroup within China that is the MSS and this one is Gru and this one. And (laughs) my head is exploding. I'm like, how have we gotten so great at attribution 
that uh, we are no longer mm. making these mistakes. Help me understand where we are today. Is it easy today to do this attribution and know specifically? Do we have enough data? Do we have enough mapping? Do we have enough of this attribution engine set up mm. that it's accurate? Or are you seeing a lot of mistakes being made? Help me understand why we've moved from Russian speaking, Chinese speaking <laughs> to MSS group. Not just that, but like the, we have, uh, I don't know, not only that, but we have like Chinese companies accusing uh, NSA, CIA, whatever. Yeah, so it's like it's more, more or less free for all. I think uh, the question of attribution is uh, uh, is a very complicated one in the sense that the worst possible thing is to be wrong. And what happens is that when you are wrong and let's say you point to somewhere else, you create a lot of confusion. Which in turn, well, like long term, it it uh, muddies attribution and it ruins your credentials. So the more mistakes you make, the less, let's say, people will trust uh, your decisions in the future. And I'll just give you uh, a few uh, examples from memory. I remember back in the days, WannaCry. Uh, you and I we wrote uh, those blogs on WannaCry very late in the night, if mm-hmm. you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was quite interesting when people pushed the idea that WannaCry was a North Korean uh, government-sponsored project, certain company came and they immediately said that's like impossible. That's like counter-attribution. It cannot be North Korea because governments don't write ransomware. Governments do not create ransomware. They don't steal cryptocurrencies and money. So it cannot be North Korean state sponsored right counter attribution obviously wrong i think the nsa and a lot of uh, other organizations they later they came and uh, attributed wanna cry to the lazarus apt group uh, right which is a north korean sponsored uh, apt group so i think that when you get the attribution wrong things are are really bad for your reputation so at least in our case we wanted to, to play the long game here so uh, we try to be as precise as possible. If we see maybe some kind of Russian-speaking artifacts, then we call it Russian-speaking, right? Uh, we try not to play the finger-pointing game. And I think that you know bad things have happened uh, in the past because of uh, misattribution. And one good example here, I think, is this uh, UNC-1152 uh, group that even the European Union, they blame the Russian government for uh, being behind it. And uh, it was quite funny to see that almost immediately it was Shane Huntley from Google who, who wrote something on uh, Twitter that it's not always Russia. And then Mendian came uh, with a report in which they actually uh, uh, suggested that was not actually Russia, it was uh, Belarusia. So this is like the typical Russian-speaking uh, mistake, correct? They're both Russian-speaking, but it's not Russia. Of right. course, you can go into arguments that maybe they're not operating independently of each other and so on. But nevertheless, to me, I tell you that to me as a researcher and as an engineer or technical person, getting things right is important. Maybe, you know, there's a school of analysts where you can say, we believe with, uh, I don't know, medium-low confidence that it is whatever it is. It is that. But we tried, at least in our case, we tried to avoid this this game as much as possible and just point out to the technical uh, evidence. Has it gotten easier, though? Uh, with experience, with enough, having seen enough campaigns and seen enough of these tools and enough of these operations does it become easier to do this attribution and pinpoint what makes attribution easier like over the years let's say you know there's 
there's a couple of big APT groups out there, right, which have been around for many, many years. Like, uh, I'll give you a Turla is one of them, right? They're still, they're still out there. They still do their stuff. Maybe they have, I don't know, new methods, new tools. So they contract some of their tools to to others and so on. But nevertheless, it's still it's still Turla, right? One thing which uh, I think it rarely changes, or one thing which kind of gives away the attacker is the uh, victimology. So we we try to look a lot at victimology to understand if there's overlap with previous attacks. And let's say if you have an actor uh, which was always interested in like this very specific set of countries, or the vast majority of their victims was always in that specific set of countries, I mean, there isn't a big surprise. Like it's it's them again. They they might be coming with different tools. They might be coming with uh, new ideas, but it's the same people. It's I think it's much easier to attribute new attacks to known actors, and then known actors to do the uh, attribution to a certain nation state uh, based on their previous work nowadays if you ask me everyone is more careful and things are getting more and more sophisticated one example here would be that there's uh (laughs) well on one hand uh, just to mention briefly this uh, triangulation attack which uh, targeted kaspersky uh, there's still no good attribution on that like uh, there's no technical indicators which point to a very clear specific threat actor right there's nothing and that is like kind of the the proof of how good these threat actors are the other example i think which is quite interesting is uh, uh what was it the vault typhoon this is the chinese uh the chinese microsoft find this chinese thing in guam doing some critical true, infrastructure true but uh, again right? if uh, if you want like uh, one of the things which we see nowadays is that there's uh, less and less uh, kind of technical proof that it is whatever it is, Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I trust Microsoft, for sure, I trust them. But do you have the the same level of confidence when uh, a startup that uh, has been maybe six months on the market, they say the same thing? I don't know. I I don't, personally. But uh, I think it matters a lot if you have a good history of being right or you have a history of uh, getting things wrong or no history. I'm glad you brought up triangulation because it kind of dovetails with the next question on my list is you have famously said that you always assume there's five APT sitting on your box at one, at any one time. <laughs> it's kind of like the notion that no one is really fully protected. Um, your company was a victim twice, Duku 2 and triangulation. Just a direct question to you. Were you personally uh, uh, infected in any of those? And walk me through the feeling of being a victim. Mm. What does that feel like? And is that research any different from a traditional APT research? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you like, uh, I'll start by just telling you how, how I learned. Did the people sit on your right <laughs> I'll, I'll just start by telling you how I learned about Duku too. So um, it was just uh, <laughs> a couple of days before my birthday, which is why I remember it so well. It was like quite late. I think it was maybe... Uh, 11 p.m. or something like that and i get a, a message on my phone from from a colleague oh we've been hacked uh, there's uh, there's like an infection uh, in the network and uh, they got to whatever server and that server and so on. and i'm thinking like ah so this, this is like uh, it's april my birthday is in april so this is like an april's fool's joke right because they like it uh, it's it's 
famously known that uh, in Russia people like this. They like these jokes a lot. So I'm like, they're playing uh, an April Fool's joke on me, right? So I go to bed. It was quite late again, uh, thinking it's a joke. I woke up uh, the next morning, 7 a.m. I opened my computer and lo and behold, that guy is online. And now if you know that person, uh, he usually uh, wouldn't get online until 1 p.m. or so. So I was like, 7 a.m. and the guy is online. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? Are, are you sick or something? What's up? He's like, no, 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 I'm working on that thing from last night. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so this, this, it's not an April Fool's joke. Like this is the first shock when you realize that this is for real. This is not a joke. Uh, so the next step is, am I a victim? You, you have to assume that if you are an important uh, person in whatever company, that then you are probably, you, you could be a victim. So what you need to do is, of course, you start checking all your devices, backups. Uh, over the time, I, I think I've gotten better and better at uh, understanding that uh, you can't stop it. You cannot stop it. Uh, I spoke to um, people from the other side, if you want, thinking of myself maybe more, more of a blue teamer, but I spoke to people who develop uh, uh, iPhone zero-click uh, chain so worth i don't know millions of dollars you speak to these people I, I did i did i did meet a couple of them and we spoke and we discussed things and uh, my question was how do you protect yourselves guys i mean <laughs> and they were like we, right. we don't like you can't that that was you just can't That's that, a that was a reality you cannot protect yourself and once you realize that when you accept that uh, then uh, you understand that you you need to focus on something else. Like you can't focus on uh, preventing the infection. What you need to focus on, on is detecting it as uh, soon as possible. So for that, you need logs, you need like uh, artifacts. And of course, you need to, to make it as uh, hard as possible for the attackers to increase the costs, right? You need to essentially make it as difficult as possible to, to get to your devices. And, uh, if you remember, I, I did write this uh, guide about iOS security. I think uh, we did it together. You helped me uh, yeah, publish yeah. it. Published it on uh, Dark Reading. And the funny thing is that if you actually followed that guide, you'd be safe, right? The sad thing is that uh, a lot of people either didn't read it or they didn't follow uh maybe they didn't want to turn off iMessage you are i think one of the people who say like you you, you just can't turn off iMessages right no you, you, you cannot need that blue bubble yeah, you, you need, need the, blue the, bubble. the blue bubble chat it's a, like an ecosystem that that makes you an outsider if you don't in this, have it. No, in this I mean, life there's a cultural thing there in this life you're either blue or green there's like no in yeah. between I'm, and I'm here's the, the green thing: guy. if you can't protect yourself, if we if we if we take your point that nobody can protect yourself, then then why make usability? Uh, why reduce mm. usability and reduce things like that's a philosophical it argument is. for yeah. another time. But I want to double back. Did you have you ever found an APT on 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 either your phone or your machine? I haven't. I haven't. It doesn't mean that uh, my devices weren't uh, targeted. It uh, probably only means that I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, collected enough logs to confirm infections every or any time uh, this happened. Just for the record, like a lot of people are asking, like, um, uh, what's better to have an iPhone? Is it better to have an Android device? What's, what's better? If you ask me personally, I think an iPhone is better. And uh, 
I don't speak about the security, but the, about the forensic capabilities, which to me are way more important. The kind of the logs that you can uh, extract from the iPhone, they are vastly more useful than those that you can get from uh, any Android device. Uh, just look, for instance, uh, at things such as MVT, uh, running it on iTunes backups and how iTunes backups, I don't know, propagate the signs of infraction from one phone to another. So let's say uh, every Christmas uh, or every two years uh, after Christmas, your occupation is to help your relatives to to move your their data from one phone to another, right? Make an iTunes backup. Simply having those iTunes backups can be a huge advantage because they allow you to check if your phones have been targeted uh, or uh, to look for suspicious things. I know you wrote, you talked about this iPhone guide that was published. Is there very like what is the most important thing you can do on an iPhone to protect yourself from it? Right and now, I, maybe mention iMessage mm, and turning off iMessage. Mm, is that like the most mm, crucial thing that removes attack surface? Uh, I think nowadays the most uh, effective thing is just to turn on lockdown mode. Uh, a lot of people, uh, it's maybe surprising, a lot of people don't know about lockdown mode. I'm meeting a lot of uh, different, uh, not just researchers, but even security people at events who haven't heard about lockdown mode. They don't have it turned on on their phones. And uh, I think Apple probably could do better here to to make it, let's say, more popular. But at the same time, yeah, yeah, but you're just you're diminishing the usefulness of an iPhone if you True. if you push if you push lockdown mm. mode, you're basically telling people don't use these amazing features that we're selling iPhone on. Like that's the predicament they're in, right? Yeah, but again, lockdown mode is not that restrictive, right? You can still use iMessage. You can you can have a lot of, a lot of things. Me, I'm stupid question. more extreme. Stupid question. Just on just on lockdown mode mm. here. Would lockdown mode have blocked the infection path for triangulation, which was very specifically aimed at iOS, older versions of iOS? Um, and I know it's a stupid question because I mean, whether it would have been blocked, they would not have used it if it was mm. blocked. So I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like one of those stupid, use, useless questions. But in this case, in this very specific, based on what we know, mm. would turning on lockdown mode have mitigated that? Uh, it's 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 a good question. I think the opinions here are split. Some people believe uh, it would have, and other people believe it wouldn't. Uh, now, what you need to to know about this uh, specific attack is that probably there wasn't just one chain. Like it wasn't just this zero click chain, but at the same time there was for sure a, a web based infection vector. Uh, you can probably do the web based infection vector either through a one click attack or through some kind of a man in the middle quantum man on the side attack i think and there's a chance that these other vectors wouldn't have been uh, stopped by the lockdown mode one other by the way another important uh, point here i think is um, there's a lot of discussions they say like oh i've been targeted on uh, uh, ios so i'm gonna switch to uh, i don't know samsung phones i'm gonna switch to android and i'm not gonna use iphones again i think this is the the dumbest possible thing imaginable and i'll tell you why because and i'll use another analogy from uh, from chess there's a lot of people who play chess uh, i call them uh, one move people what it means is they just uh, they they look just one move ahead so you play a move i look at your move oh okay so you uh, you're like bringing out the horse uh, it means you want to attack my pawn, so I'm going to protect my pawn. So there's just one move. I'm looking just one move ahead. When in reality, you have to understand that this 
uh, guys like the the kind of people who have these resources they are not one move apts they've they've already seen you actually go through all these steps they know that you're probably gonna switch from uh, iphone to android they know they're gonna use gonna switch from android to iphone they know you're gonna switch i don't know to whatever platform and they they have everything ready for that as well it's already ready it's already prepared so they're just like waiting for you please please switch just come and we'll hit you with our uh, zero click uh, samsung uh, uh, chain or we're gonna hit you with your google nexus uh, or pixel chain and this is gonna happening be happening forever over and over again you mentioned you never found the apt in your own uh, devices uh, have you ever felt personally threatened or nervous about the work that you did uh, from like a physical just like uh, mm. my own safety yeah i mean uh, <laughs> a couple of times and i think uh, we we share this feeling <laughs> at least once uh, at a very specific moment. This is, I think, one of the the harsh realities that when you do security research and whenever you are like looking into sophisticated threats, you have to assume, you have to understand that someone will get upset. Like powerful people will get upset for sure. They will do one of several possible things. A lot of you know, try to go after you personally or after the company or they're, you know, just going to try to, to find a way so that doesn't happen again one way or another. And in my case, finding uh, that cube uh, in my uh, uh, dining room a couple of years ago, I think it was uh, an eye-opening moment. Um, and after that, Talk the story. Can you tell the story? Yeah, when you of mean, course. There's people in the audience that don't know about uh, it. It was after my, my speech about Stuxnet at uh, Virus Bulletin in Vancouver. And so a couple of weeks later, I came back from there. And uh, at the conference, there were a couple of very suspicious people who came. They paid in cash. They only came uh, for the Stuxnet talks and left uh, afterwards. Um, and a lot of people, they, you know, they were speculating that there must be some kind of connection with with Stuxnet. And about two weeks after this uh, incident, uh, uh, when I went home, I, I found uh, I found a cube like uh, like a dice uh, on my dining room with a couple of different messages uh, that we use. Uh, we uh, we had this in the office. Uh, so it was part of a game where you roll the dice and there's like different possible answers. And one of them was take a break. But there was also a lot of things like yes, no, maybe, and take a break. And this cube, uh, which was in our uh, office, it suddenly appears in my home <laughs> in the middle of the, of the table, of the dining table, with the, with the top up, with the message take a break. So it was kind of pretty obvious that someone broke into the office, stole the dice, broke into my home and put it on the table just to prove to prove a point that whenever they want, they can break into the office, they can break into my home. And uh, the best thing to do would be, you know, just to take a break, which is actually what I did for a couple of months. I did take a break. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated picture here. Uh, and when you do security research, you have to understand that uh, you are making yourself a target with cyber criminals, with nation states. Uh, I mean, even nowadays, ransomware cartels are getting quite powerful. Mm -hmm. They're getting quite rich and powerful. It's a risk 
doing security research uh, cannot be risk free did you make any mistakes uh, uh, in your decision making at great do you have any regrets is there a specific thing that you would do differently what would you say was like the biggest not necessarily screw up but something that you you know lives in your mind as i wish i had done that differently I think doing mistakes is very important because uh, you only learn, you rarely learn from doing the things right. Most of the time, you learn from mistake. This is uh, one of the things, by the way, which I which I learned from uh, practicing martial arts is uh, that you grow from your mistakes. Uh, thinking about your mistakes, thinking thinking like what you can do better, like how you can do things uh, in a more efficient way. Uh, that is how you grow, actually. So for sure, I think uh, uh, we've done a lot of mistakes. In my opinion, the biggest mistake maybe I did or that anyone can do is not to allow people to make mistakes. So you have to give people freedom and you have to let them uh, go wrong by themselves. Otherwise, you know, uh, they will never learn. So like I was saying, micromanaging people is probably the, the worst possible thing, making sure that nobody... Uh, nobody does any kind of mistakes. On the other hand, when I realized this, and uh, let's say I said, okay, I'll I'll take a more relaxed approach to things. Obviously, we don't want to have any major screw-ups. But uh, at the same time, you need to let people do mistakes because this is how they learn. I, I was more asking around like publishing attribution any of that stuff were there any were there mm. any things that you wish you had done differently no and uh, there were <laughs> there were a couple of cases you know when we, when we published things uh, which uh, potentially uh, could have led to to lawsuits so that we were like threatened with lawsuits a couple of times actually even right now, there's a very interesting story happening with uh, Raphael Satter and uh, their story about Appin. Ah, right, the mm -hmm. Appin stuff, right. which I think is quite quite interesting. Uh, this uh, is similar to what happened to us in the past, without you know going into details uh, because of legal reasons. But nevertheless, there were uh, a couple of cases when we were threatened with lawsuits, even if our research was solid. Like the most important point here is that the research was solid, right? There were no mistakes. There were like no uh, wrong words there. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, that that's a threat. That's a threat, and the lawsuits can happen for sure. Uh, what are there unfinished projects or unanswered questions that keep you up at night, like uh, a, a bit of APT <laughs> research or something mm. that just felt like you never was able to nail it. Can you talk a little bit about some of those edge cases that continue to live in your mm -hmm. mind where a report may have been published, but there's a lot of unanswered questions and missing pieces? What stands out to you? Um, actually, I, I published uh, a list on Twitter, like the top 10 unsolved um, APT mysteries, which I, I think it's quite nice. Mm -hmm. uh, so I um, advise uh, our listeners to take a look. Uh, since I published the list, I think uh, a couple of them have become more clear or they kind of have been solved in a way, if you want. Also, people, I think they also added more mysterious. Uh, I think we can probably talk hours about some of them. Uh, for sure, while Neutron, th the biggest issue for me is losing track 
losing guys on a threat actor and never finding them again. That's like the biggest issue. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I just mentioned Wild Neutron, right? I think they were last seen around 2016 or 2015. And nobody has seen them ever since. So they must they must be around. So it's impossible that they disappear completely. Another one would be, I guess, Animal Farm, right? Uh, Animal Farm again, big, pretty, yeah, big, big operation, big, pretty French big speaking, operation. Right? Uh, good stuff, I would say. Good quality. Uh, again, I haven't seen anything uh, new since it was uh, originally published about. Um, there's of course one that is uh, it's always been as this amazing thing because to me personally it was one of the first things that I I, I worked on which is Regin uh, just to bring some context back in the days uh, I was going to a couple of uh, conferences where people were essentially you know talking about uh, what are the hot hot subjects uh, of the day. And pretty much at all these conferences where I was uh, going, people were talking about uh, Regin and Turla, right? So these were like the most interesting ones, like the Turla satellites, uh, interception. I think, yeah, with Turla, there's, uh, of course, there's a lot of uh, new things coming up with, with Regin. Uh, I think there were a couple of very interesting incidents in which... Uh, uh, router malware was used and I never got to to look into any of that router malware. I think that probably router malware is way more prevalent than people think or understand. I kind of suspect that you know pretty much all big major exchanges on the internet they do have something uh, in their uh, infrastructures it just it's so complicated and so difficult to to identify these things. And uh, only, let's say, when you have things like a crash or some kind of an anomaly, that is that you you actually discover that these uh, these things have been in the network for decades, if not even like you know more. What's the most impressive APT operation you've seen, just from a technical brilliance kind of intellectual marvel? What's the one that stands out in your mind? I was just thinking that overall, Stuxnet and Duku. They, they're for sure, they were brilliant projects, uh, closely related. What do you make of the fresh Stuxnet news? It's uh, kind of interesting. So just uh, um, to bring everyone uh, on the same page, uh, recently news in a Dutch magazine from uh, Huib, who is a journalist uh, working uh, on a lot of big, uh, big topics. And also it seems he has very good sources in the Dutch intelligence wrote uh, the story that uh, 2007, a Dutch mall actually brought an infected uh, water pump into Natanz, the uranium enrichment plant, and that's how uh, Stuxnet was seeded. Um, there's also like a couple of interesting points in the article, such as uh, it's, it says that Stuxnet costed uh, over $1 billion, uh, something that people uh, attribute to Michael Hayden. Uh, of course, it's good discussion. Like, what was one billion dollars? Was it the software itself, the exploits, or the whole operation? I think it's more like the whole operation, the whole right? Operation. Even let's say procuring the centrifuges and uh, all the PLCs and the rotors and uh, all the motors and everything. Like, you need that in order to test if the sabotage actually works. So that's you know when you include all these things, the cost makes sense. 
But what is interesting to me is that if he did the attack in uh, 2007, that would be a very early version of Stuxnet. There were a, a couple of waves. The earliest uh, version is what Symantec calls Stuxnet 0.5 that appears to have been designed around 2005, maybe 2006. Yeah, where there's like later later waves of Stuxnet 2008, 2009, 2010 that were way more aggressive. But what is interesting here is that the version, the early versions of Stuxnet, they didn't have network replication. So they only infected uh, WinCC projects, uh, S7 projects. And that kind of suggests that probably the water pump may have come with uh, some kind of software. And the moment that you load that software into WinCC, it essentially it spreads to other projects. So I think that that's uh, that's an interesting detail. But I mean, historically, we know that the later versions of Stuxnet they were seeded through five different uh, Iranian companies. So we know the exact names of those companies. Right. But yeah, what is interesting for me as a story is that early on, for sure, there were attempts to to push Stuxnet through malls, you know, through physical access which may have been or may have not been successful and later different approaches were taken so like this evolution i think this poking you know seeing what works uh changing uh changing your methodology trying a new attack vector yeah this is like all very interesting uh the whole stocksnet operation stands out to you as one of the more sophisticated ones oh yeah just just thinking like for sure uh just imagine what uh uh, what this looks nowadays. I mean, we continue to to have the same issues, like we are talking about the same things, like uh, uranium enrichment, the West uh, being uh, worried about the fact that Iran is going to have a nuclear capability. So the same programs must be happening uh, uh, nowadays as well. They may be happening like in a different way, uh, through things uh, like uh, Meteor Express or Predatory Sparrow, uh, which also do run some very interesting operations uh, in Iran. But if you ask me like, just to point to one, I would say Stuxnet and Duku are the ones which really stand out from Everything the rest. Everything we know about APT is a historical look, right? We never really have visibility into what's happening now or you know what's been happening for a while. And I want ask, I asked you this question before and I want to ask it again mm. to see if your answer has changed. What percentage of all APT attacks that is currently happening, we're just going to guess that there's like a, a number mm. out there. Let's make it up. What percentage right. of that number you think we as defenders and researchers have visibility on? Mm. I think 30%, something like this. You think yeah. we see three in every 10 that's in, in operation at any time? Mm. Yeah, I think I think so. And a very good example is I I mean Microsoft when when they found uh, uh, this stuff in their network, you know, simply uh, through the fact that the attackers managed to steal this certificate and they were, they were using this uh, golden uh, certificate to to read people's emails, right? So they found it like only by by accident or indirectly but just imagine if a company like microsoft they discover that the attacker has been in their networks for i think it was over one year mm-hmm. uh, something like that one year and uh, five months and it's not any company that we're talking about but we're talking about companies which have all the resources in the world like the best threat intelligence in the world right you find the attack after one year one year and a half that's a raw then, reality uh, yeah 
I think that's, yeah, that's uh, the true reality here. And the fact that what we are seeing, the other thing is, by the way, that what we are seeing and what we are discovering is probably the things from five years Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The stuff that already happened. uh, We've seen this from 2017 to 2021, and we're now writing about this thing that happened three years ago. We'll share this IOX. Meanwhile, Mm. you're saying there's seven out of every 10 that's swarming Mm. around our networks now that nobody knows about. How do we do we do we get better at that at that level of visibility? Do you think that because the last time I asked you this question, the number has changed. By the way, the last time you said we see about fifty percent, you're saying we are seeing less. <laughs> less, yeah. So it things think are getting we're worse. Seeing less. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think the things are getting. Uh, I think they're getting worse because, like, the evidence seems to be pointing in that direction, right? Just mentioning Microsoft, mentioning uh, the triangulation case. What this suggests is that there are things out there. They've been around for many, many years, and we only now we are getting to see them. And at the same time, when you look at, uh, and I think this is like the most interesting uh, point, is just uh, looking at what uh, exploit brokers, vulnerability brokers are buying, right? Like, for instance, they're buying... Uh, network attest storage, uh, zero days, remote code executions, routers. Um, edge devices, obviously, Fortinet, edge devices, Sonic VPS, water, things, yeah. but not only that, but mobile mobile devices, zero, zero click chains, uh, baseband exploits, right? Uh, how many APTs have you read about using uh, baseband exploits and actually having those baseband uh, exploits dissected in details. Not that many, right? Not that many. And we know that Uh, for a fact that these exploits exist, it's pretty trivial to exploit. It's like... If they're being traded, if they're being traded, bought, somebody's using them, right? They're... Uh, there's like nobody's a finding difference. them. It's the same thing with firmware. <laughs> Correct. Uh, it's the same thing with firmware and UEFI based threats. We know that people oh, sitting on these things. We know they're using them, and nobody's finding them. What does that tell us about the available technologies and the available tools we have to defend against these things? Yeah, I think there's a lot of dark spots, and uh, w- one of the big dark spots, if you ask me, is the fact that there's a lot of devices out there on the internet with no kind of security solutions on them, right? Uh, think about servers, mostly Linux computers or um, servers running uh, enterprise-level uh, operating systems. And not only that, but uh, what I hate I hate to mention the grain of rice story, but th- there's like a bit of truth in that story in the sense... This is the Bloomberg uh, 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 grain of rice infection on correct. a uh, chip on a server. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe could very well be that the part about the grain of rice was uh, untrue. However, what I what I think about is the fact that enterprise uh, class equipment servers, they do essentially have another computer in them, uh, the BMI. Essentially, that is a perfect, uh, the perfect spot for for something uh, to hide if you if you really wanted to to make things very stealthy and there's like zero chances that you from the uh, from the computer that you can find the stuff hiding in the in the management uh, interface there's like zero chances what do you make of this surge in zero day discoveries we're starting to see i, I don't remember the numbers but year over year oh yeah Hundreds, year over year right? the documentation mm. is it's climbing does that mean we're uh-huh. better at finding them? Does that mean 
uh, attackers are a lot more careless? Does that mean there are more attackers in the space? Like, what does it mean? Uh, I think it's a bit of all. Uh, let's let's think uh, from the point of view of vulnerability brokers, right? Uh, back back in the days, I don't know, ten years ago, there was just maybe one company doing that, right? And nowadays, there's like easily probably a couple dozen different companies or individuals buying, selling zero days. All those zero days, they probably you know they aren't bought for. Uh, for storage and being put on a shelf. They are obviously bought for usage in live attacks. So the fact that so you think the more, more are being, being generated. generated, more are being traded and sold. So that automatically means that more of them will be uh, will be in the wild. Uh, for sure, there are like some key individuals which play a, a big role in finding all these zero days. There's, of course, uh, Clem at Google who, who finds a lot of zero days, uh, notably from the Dark Hotel guys. He's figuring out, he's figuring out ways <laughs> to set traps though, right? I mean, they're, 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 he, he's got to be doing some very unique, specific things with the level, uh, with the tools that he has and the, the visibility uh, and access that he yeah, has. Yeah, right? I, I think it's always like um, uh, the same in... Uh, in all companies, it's not just the visibility, but it's having visibility and one guy, one guy who is, you know, better, uh, relentless, a relentless person who is just better than everyone else at finding things. And we, we do, we did uh, used to have such, uh, such guys in our companies, in my team, finding things that nobody else can find. But it's also like a combination of data, but not just the data, but also the right people finding those zero days. All right, to, to close, tell me how does AI fix all of this? Like, give me give me the AI. I know in, in all seriousness, are you bullish on AI being enabling new technologies to really mm -hmm. change things? Or is this just going to be another little blip of uh, another tool to add to the arsenal? Where are you in the whole AI revolution and all this hype? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer I'll answer with, uh, first of all, by saying something uh, that I read recently was quite interesting to me. I was saying that pretty much all the AI models um, uh, being trained after the release of uh, ChatGPT 3.5, they're like getting worse and worse. And the reason is that they're getting trained on data that is produced by other AIs. So this is polluting things. Uh, there's, uh, in my opinion, the biggest issue is the, the hallucinations and the fact that there's a potential, like a huge potential there for AI to make uh, our lives better, to make things uh, uh, faster, uh, IOX more effective, but at the same time, I'm I'm afraid I'm worried about the uh, uh, hallucinations uh, issue, which is still I think the biggest at the moment. I mean, there's no doubt that in the future uh, more of the threat intelligence work will be done by by uh, by AIs. Uh, what's the what's what's parts hmm? of the threat intelligence work that's ripe for AI augmentation? I think. Uh, Two things, uh, writing reports and understanding reports. So for me, let's say having, not just me, but any CTO, right? Simply having the ability to ask an AI that uh, has been trained on all the private reports from all different vendors and just that. So the AI knows the reports. Remember that I, I mentioned the case of a customer who has five analysts essentially reading reports, right. everyday reading reports. Uh, okay, replace that with an AI that is reading the reports, not just from one vendor, but from all the vendors. And then you simply ask a question, what should I worry about 
today, like my company? And the answer to that question, which will be different every day, is extremely, extremely valuable. And it can be a time, uh, a time saving, and it can be, you know, uh, it can make a huge difference for a company, no matter how big or or how small. So I think that's the point where AI can make a difference, both in writing reports. Do you think it still will require some human curation? Yeah, for sure. At the end of it, it still will require some human curation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, like I was saying, the things that you need to worry is that if, if you're training the AI on reports that have been written by other AIs, <laughs> then you're going to have a problem, right? So then... It's the cleanliness of data in the training models also becomes yeah, very crucial. It's simply like if you make a, a soup, the, the quality of the soup, you know, it depends on the quality of the ingredients. So I think that there's mm-hmm. still a place for analysts uh, in the future. There's still a place for good... Uh, investigators if you want people who can uh, AI is never going to replace a clem right uh, but it's going to augment his work and automate a lot of the things Mm -hmm. that right yeah exactly and it will probably allow for more sophisticated discoveries but at the same time it will allow for more sophisticated attacks so that means the attacks will be faster they'll be more complex Uh, one of the things which i think is powering this is the fact there's a huge ecosystem an underground ecosystem where uh, stolen credentials are being traded access uh, to computer networks machines government networks and uh, so on so all that is uh, kind of ripe uh, and it will be used uh, by attackers leveraging AI in the future, you know, to make things uh, faster, easier for them. Is there a specific use case for AI that you wish was already in place uh, to help with this, this level of work? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned report writing, but if you if you could pick a use case that you could implement today and have mm. AI, just sort that out for me, what would it be? Oh, I, I would like to have like uh, AI to, to check all the logs in my network, everything. And uh, let's say, emulate the eye of a skilled analyst like you probably remember that old uh, speech that rob joyce uh, gave a couple of years ago at a conference the enigma, famous enigma talk right yeah where he said you know the biggest uh, the biggest threat for them would be uh, an out-of-band network tag and a competent sysadmin watching the logs i, I would like a competent ai uh, watching mm, my logs in real time all the logs from my mobile phone, from my router, from my network, from my computers, and you know, tap tapping me, like tapping me whenever, whenever something suspicious happens. And by suspicious, I mean the same level of uh, suspicious that an analyst of uh, Clem's level would find. What's next for you after you get your Taekwondo black belt? Like, what, what, what where's your head at now? As you head, you, are you going to stay in the APT research world? Or are you going to go build something? What is next for you? I would like, I would like to uh, to build something uh, which kind of combines uh, uh, all the big ideas that are appearing around the world. So, if you ask me, what, uh, remember we we started by um, by discussing a bit the the fact that 2023, 2024, they're kind of defining because there's big things happening. AI is one of them. I think quantum computing uh, is another. And I dare say probably cryptocurrencies uh, are also a significant thing. There's absolutely no way that the future can uh, exist without uh, cryptocurrencies like this 
these are probably going to explode and uh, financial systems will not be replaced but that's like one of the biggest mistakes is to think they'll be replaced no they'll be augmented or they'll just embrace uh, these new technologies and threats and attacks uh, in the future you know they'll take dimensions pretty much in in these um, categories and I would like uh, to to work more on this on this topic. I think when effective quantum computers will hit the market, then there'll be big issues with things like RSA or public key encryption, right? So there's already uh, discussions about implementing uh, quantum resistant encryption, which uh, I, I think they're very important. I think it's like really interesting to see malware implementing quantum resistant uh, encryption algorithms for command and control like that's the level which indicates that uh, there's those uh, many moves ahead apts uh, that are out there there's thinking and they're thinking as well about the future avoiding artificial intelligence quantum computers and maybe even exploiting concepts such as uh, blockchains for communications or for sophisticated attacks so i like for sure to build something in this uh, in these directions i am playing with some ideas but uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna keep them private for a bit longer before i i say anything on the topic thank you very much costin rayo thank you ryan best of luck with the taekwondo training and looking forward to doing this again at any time thank you my friend <laughs>